everybody. Welcome back to the Memory Leak Podcast. I'm John Algets, or as you might know me on the internet, Bender Waffles. And this week, I am joined by my best friend in the entire world. It is Owen Poole. Hey, how's it going, John? We are now we now have to record these remotely again. Yeah, I mean, like we were recording Starwipe Lounge, which is a previous podcast that we were part of, and also uh, the the Screen Ramp podcast together. Those are two separate podcasts. Starwipe Lounge wasn't the Screen Ramp podcast. I want to be clear on that. Oh, uh, it should have been. But it should have been, and <laughs> and we were uh, in person for those. And now I'm I'm eighteen hundred miles away, so we have to do it this way. We're doing it the old fashioned way, but I think our uh, audio quality is going to be better. Oh yeah, it probably will because you're in a you're in a vocal booth. I'm in my office, which is treated like a vocal booth. Uh, so I think that we're we're going to be all great. But this week we're not talking about audio quality, though I probably should have an episode about audio. It is important to game design. But uh, no, this week we are talking about something that is more important to storytelling. We are talking about the hero's journey. It is a classic structure for breaking down your stories to just kind of try to follow a very classical way of doing stories. Basically. And you, you, and when you say classical, you mean classical. This is like one of the oldest methods of storytelling. Yes. And if you're not familiar with it, you're going to recognize it literally everywhere. This is something that uh, it was developed uh, during the the 1900s, like officially, but it's something that has been used like since the dawn of man. It's just that we didn't really like have it have a name for it. Until. It wasn't studied. Yeah, it wasn't studied. But we're going to be we're going to be breaking it down for you. We're going to be taking a look at some examples throughout media, probably focusing more on movies because we're both movie guys. Uh, and then we will bring it around and we're going to talk about the application of the hero's journey within video games. Uh, is it something that can really be done or is it something that uh, is doesn't really fit the medium? All this and more coming up right now. All right, so in this first little bit here, we're going to go into the history of the hero's journey. We're going to talk about what it actually is. Uh, so sit tight. We'll get into examples here shortly. So the hero's journey is something that, it's that, as we said in the intro, it has basically existed since the dawn of storytelling in one form or the other. We just didn't necessarily have a name for it. You see it a lot in myths. That's why, like, the mono myth is something that comes up a lot. But the first time that it was actually properly like defined was in a book called the hero with a thousand faces written by Joseph Campbell, who took pieces of analytical psychology and broke down, you know, classic Greek myths, Roman myths, uh, some stuff from North mythology, stuff of that nature, looked at religions and broke it down and devised a pattern. Now there are a bunch, like there are four different people who have defined the patterns differently we're going to mainly be focusing on the one that we were taught. Well, there's a there's a good reason for that cuz like you mentioned, like one of the other terminologies for the hero's journey is the monomyth, which if you're, you know, a linguistic person means the singular myth. It's like the one that all of these are based on and that's how, you know, Campbell was able to devise this, I don't know if you call it a theory, but structure. Sort of devise the structure of the hero's journey by examining all these different things 
and pointing out all their commonalities because there is a lot of them. Pretty commonly, even across all of the, as I said, four different people have kind of devised their own structures to it, but all of them tend to break it down into three acts. You have your, you have the first act, which is the departure. The second act, which is, which is initiation, which is itself sometimes broken into two separate ones, descent and initiation. Um, but at the very least, you have act two, initiation. And then act three, the return. And each one of these is then broken down even further. Uh, as I said, Campbell devised his version in 1949. There was a man by the name of David Adams Leeming, I think is how you pronounce that, who broke it down his own way in 1981. He he really just took it and simplified it. Uh, Phil Cusino. Cus I'm probably butchering that name, uh, in 1990 took it and even further simplified it to the point that act one only has one point. The call to adventure is all that exists in Kisno's first act. Uh, but then the one that we're going to be talking about mainly today and the one that we were taught the most in our education is the one that was devised by Christopher Vogler in 2007. Uh, and his goes like this and we'll break down the individual things as we go. But, uh, act one, the departure, you had, uh, the ordinary world call to adventure, refusal of the call meeting with the mentor and crossing the first threshold. The second act initiation was tests, allies, and enemies. Approach the inmost cave, the ordeal, reward. And act three is the road back, the resurrection, and return with the elixir. Now, it's important to note that this is, you know... These are really broad definitions. Extremely broad. You remember, like most people, at least when we were in elementary school, we were taught the idea of a plot arc was, you know, you've got your your uh, beginning, you know, your... Uh, uh, conflict, climax, resolution, end. This is kind of that, but more complicated. Yeah, like a like a, a basic three act structure. You know, you have your introduction, then you have your um, rising action. Yeah, you have rising. the climax with the climax, which is not the end. It's just the resolution of the conflict, and then you have your falling action, which is kind of the resolution of the story. And I think that probably the easiest way to break this down is just pick one example just kind of go through the whole thing and probably the one everyone knows the best would be luke skywalker in a new hope yeah because this is classic hero's journey george lucas talked about it if you read his like inspirations for the story it's not just kurosawa it's, although it's a lot of kurosawa it's it's the monomyth and this is where a lot of people get their ideas so you know you have luke skywalker's ordinary world of him on the moisture farm in tatooine and then the call to adventure comes very literally from the hologram of leia being like help me i need so i need rescuing yeah he's literally like the call to adventure is just the part in the story where something something it forces the hero like it says like you need to go out of your like safe area and go you know on this adventure. it's something it's something that changes or draws them out of their ordinary world you can think yeah. about this with um harry potter as well yeah getting the That's letter really, you're, it's a, really you're, classic a, you're one. a wizard harry yeah exactly this is this is usually always followed by something called the refusal of the call it happened with luke skywalker with him being like oh i i can't go save this princess you know like i'm just i'm just a farm boy from tatooine like he, he's literally telling obi-wan like i can't i can't do this like this isn't my thing and this is this is literally it's when the hero is just like oh, i'm not gonna go do that 
why would I why would I go do that when I could just you know sit here in my hobbit hole and uh, you know the hobbit is another great example that's why I perfect example yeah I mean it kind of works the same way in our own in our own lives we have a certain level of comfort and in order for something to change the status quo you have to put in a real effort and it's sometimes pretty difficult so you know luke skywalker meets the mentor obi-wan obviously yeah and doesn't want to do it initially but then he crosses the threshold of going on this adventure when the stormtroopers kill his aunt and uncle and there's nothing left for him in his ordinary world. It is worth noting, by the way, that the hero's journey can sometimes happen out of order within acts. So like he meets the mentor before he refuses the call technically. So these things can go out of order, but just know that these beats are always going to be there for the most part. It's always, it's always going to be fluid. Yeah. The more, the more rigid ones are the more like super classical ones like uh, the Odyssey? Yeah, the title, the Odyssey, is like that's a hero's journey, which it is. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. It's definitely something we're going to have to talk about a lot in our video game narrative discussion. Yeah, but so all of that happens within the first act, and usually there's you know your act break. This is basic, just story structure stuff from there. Act two initiation comes the tests, allies, and enemies. You know, Luke Skywalker goes and he meets Han Solo. He meets. Chewbacca, and they find themselves in the precarious situation of being pulled into the Death Star. Uh, and so we've we've met our enemies, or actually, I guess the encounter with the Stormtroopers on Tatooine would be the first meeting with the enemies. So that is your test allies and enemies, and then approaching the innermost cave would be arriving to the Death Star. Yeah. And going undercover to go, like, get the princess. They're in the inmost cave. They are in the, the lair of the enemy. And then the ordeal would be, you know, this is when like almost like a wrench gets thrown into the mix. Which is which is when the mentor dies, which is an often used part of the hero's journey. It's not totally necessary. Yeah, the mentor doesn't have to die here, but that's it's one of the most common tropes. It's super common. And, you know, uh, if you look at the Force Awakens, um, Han Solo basically takes the Obi-Wan role of the mentor and then he dies at basically the same point in the movie because it's a sort of retelling of the yeah. same story. And then the reward, in the case of A New Hope, things kind of, the reward comes later. Well, the, well, the reward for escaping, is, is, the reward is escaping yeah, and getting away the from means the to destroy the Death Star yeah. because they, they escape with the, the plans. They have the plans now. They have the princess. They have the 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 way to do it and the road back this is when they're they're arriving on yavin they're they've uh kind of found a, a safe place to be and the resurrection this one is always one that uh i believe there's a lot of meanings phil phil kusno is the one who in this position he put the return threshold so this is where there's a road bump and uh you know campbell also had he called this the crossing of the return threshold it's it's the 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 Death Star going to Yavin to blow it up, um, and so they have to they have to fight. Well, the Death Star. I would interpret the resurrection of Luke Skywalker as him accepting the use of the Force. That is that is another. This is and this, that's one thing about the hero's journey. It's always open to interpretation yeah, as well. It can it can be broken down, and and any any person they could take the same exact movie and come up with different points throughout for instance star wars 
their breakdown of Star Wars using the hero's journey could be way different than our breakdown. Um, but it does just ref roughly fit. Well, and in in Campbell's hero's journey, there's a point called transformation, which could also be Luke accepting use of the Force yeah. and transforming the, his character. The quote-unquote master of two worlds moment. Because in that moment, Luke is, he's still the farm boy that we knew, but now he has control over, he he's tapped into the Force for the first time. And so he's kind of in between these two different lives. Uh, and then finally, we have the return with the elixir. This is your, this is your final moment of the story everything's been resolved it's called returned with the elixir because it's the idea of like the hero returning to their ordinary world with something um with an elixir to like save a dying loved one or something of that nature luke skywalker doesn't really return to his ordinary world but this this new world has become his ordinary world well and it's kind of what he if you look if you go back to the very beginning he's petitioning uncle owen to go leave Tatooine and join the rebels. And that's eventually what he does. Well, he only specifically said he was going to join the Academy. So we don't know if he was going to join the rebels or if he was just going to, he just wants to be a fly boy. So he was going to, was he going to join the Imperial Academy? Oh, you know, he wanted to be a rebel. Oh, a hundred percent. But here's a perfect example of, of returning with the elixir is um, Indiana Jones, the temple of doom where he like literally comes back to the village with those stones to save yeah. the village. He's almost literally returning with the elixir. That is a very perfect example. Um, this is, this is also another one where maybe looking at Campbell's interpretation of the hero's journey works a little bit better because his last point is called freedom to live, which is basically just uh, the like main conflict is over. And now the hero gets to get on with his life. In the case of Luke Skywalker, he gets to get on with his life now as a newly minted rebel, a newly minted flyboy, and with his sort of like beginnings of his Jedi journey. So yeah, the the hero's journey is something that it's a it's a fantastic structure for you to be able to start off your your planning of your story. And really that's that's how most people nowadays use it. They use it in regards to like planning out a plot. Although, you know, critics will also look at the hero's journey when doing like film analysis or literary analysis and things of that nature. It comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, if, if it weren't for the whole practice of media story criticism and, and theory, we, we wouldn't even have the hero's journey it's true. as a concept as we know it. Because the hero with a thousand faces is, if nothing else, literary criticism effectively or literary yeah. analysis. He was just doing, you know, literary analysis of myths and legends. Okay, so in that last section, we we applied the hero's journey to Star Wars. But let's just, to further, you know, compound our point and to really just, like, build that the hero's journey is something that can be applied to a lot of things. We're going to now go through and we're going to look at some other pieces of media to kind of, you know, break it down and just to show you where the hero's journey fits within those stories. Uh, spoiler alert for pretty much anything that we're about to talk talk about here because we are going to completely tell you the entire stories for all of these <laughs> and i the only reason why i'm giving a spoiler alert actually right now is because we're about to talk about falcon and the winter soldier uh we're going to start with that the show just ended um as of the recording of this it was uh, a couple of days ago it just ended it'll be about a week ago when this episode is posted if you haven't seen it watch it then come back to this episode we'll still be here falcon and the winter soldier is pretty freaking textbook 
hero's journey. It's absolutely textbook. I didn't really think about it that much while I was watching it. But if you look at the whole thing, it is absolutely 100% hero's journey, especially there. I forget which of the hero's journey, like which of the scholars around this structure use the phrase, um, the seizing of the sword at toward the end. But this one works so perfectly. It starts off with Sam Wilson refusing the call of being Captain America. Yeah, he literally, like, as I was watching that episode, I was telling you this during the break, as I was watching that episode, as soon as I saw him giving the shield to the Smithsonian, I literally said out loud, well, that's a refusal of a call. That's exactly yeah. what that is. He, re he refuses the call, and then the mentor character, you could argue... It could either be two people. It could be Bucky because Bucky is the closest person to Steve Rogers. And so there's a lot of conflict between Bucky and Sam about why Sam didn't accept the shield from Steve at the end of Endgame. Um, so you could argue that he is the mentor, but you could make an equally compelling argument for... Isaiah Bradley being the mentor. I would probably so, put it on Isaiah. Because so much of Falcon and the Winter Soldier deals with race and the, the U.S. and how badly he was treated and does Sam as a, as a black man actually want to represent America in this way. Yeah. I think that, yeah, to me, Isaiah Bradley fits the, the mentor, not only just because to me he has... Probably the second largest influence on Sam Wilson outside of Bucky, but also when he comes into the story, lines up pretty well with where meeting the mentor should go. Like crossing the first threshold yeah. happens before in this tale because the first encounter with the Flag Smashers would probably be crossing the first threshold and then he meets the mentor. Uh, then we come into... You know, the the second act, the tests, allies and enemies. And again, we have another we have another situation where things are a little bit out of whack because we have the introduction of John Walker and Sharon Carter returns uh, and then also Zemo returning. Yeah, you've got your you you've established your enemies with the Flag Smashers. You are having your first kind of like tests of things really the testing of the friendship between Bucky and Sam is going on during this point and uh your allies are coming into the fold. I mean and that's one of the so that's one of the great things about it is that you don't necessarily know who your allies and enemies actually are yeah. at the outset. I would feel like approaching the inmost cave would probably be the uh Sam going in to talk with Carly and then all of the chaos that happens after that at the refugee camp. It would probably be approaching the Amos Cave. And the ordeal would 100% be John Walker killing that dude. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because that's kind of, because that sets up the reward where Sam gets the shield. He has, the, he has seized the sword at this point. Well, he hasn't really seized it at this point, but he he's in the presence of the sword. And then his time there in Louisiana is when he finally seizes the sword. We get the road back where he, you know, he's he's come back as Captain America. There's also literally the magic flight is one of the things that Campbell talks about. Yeah, there's there's a lot of flight going on. Uh, and rescue from without with Sam literally like rescuing people and things of that nature. And then suddenly at the end of it, he is the master of two worlds. He is the Falcon. He is Captain America. He's he's kind of both now. Um, and then the freedom to live. He literally like I almost would say that it's less him having the freedom to live. But finally, Isaiah Bradley has the freedom to live. 
in that final moment. Yeah, and I mean, he has his big impassioned speech uh, to the set to the to the committee who are doing this like repatriation, which would and basically saying like do you get why these people wanted you dead just for what you were trying to do? Like you need to do like do better. And you could almost read that as like a meta message to the United States. Like you need to do better on race. Yeah. And so in that universe, you get a freedom to live for more people in the United States because they can actually see Sam Wilson as Captain America. And I also, I feel like that moment also fits pretty well the the quote unquote, the resurrection. Because in that moment, to me, that is when, like, even like after he put on the suit and everything, that to me is the moment when Sam Wilson became Captain America. That is when he was reborn, resurrected as Captain America. And return with the elixir, uh, you know, Bucky shows up with a cake <laughs> at the end, so... Well, and obviously whatever issues, like financial problems he and his sister were having seems to have been resolved. So that's, yeah, that's good too. So, you know, literally he returns to his ordinary world, to his, to his life, uh, with the family and everything seems good. Everything is, everything is kosher. Uh, he has the freedom to live. Isaiah Bradley has the freedom to live. It just, it fits really, really well. Um, one that it doesn't fit as well with on its face but does when you like do micro analysis that we mentioned a very briefly at the beginning is uh Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, so one of the things people if you look at uh Campbell's hero's journey there's two sort of main sections there's the known and the unknown. Yeah. And th- and th- this is where Harry Potter fits really well. You know, the whole idea of the ri- of the wizarding world is completely unknown to him and everybody else in his known world. One of the places it's missing is the refusal of the call. Yeah, he's pretty gung-ho about going. But it 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 does pop up in other places. Yeah, one one thing we talked about during the break is that you can sort of have Especially in a, such a long story like Harry Potter, you can almost have the hero's journey repeat itself in miniature. One of the things, if you're if you're a listener of the Binge Mode podcast, one of the things they like to make jokes about is that there's all these, you know, world-spanning issues involving the Wizarding World and Voldemort and all these things. But Harry just wants to play Quidditch, bro. Like, yeah, he just wants to <laughs> he just wants to to play Quidditch and make out with. Cho Chang, bro. Like that's like half of his arc, and in, especially in in Order of the Phoenix, specifically, um, one of the main conflicts of that story is him teaching his fellow students the defense against the dark arts magic, and he refuses that call really, really hard. It takes a lot of convincing yeah. from everybody to uh, get him to actually do that for them. And you know, talking about the hero's journey uh, repeating itself. Obviously, in Empire Strikes Back, Luke goes through an entirely different hero's journey. Yeah, it's literally like, oh, you finished that one hero's journey? Psych! Time for another one. Well, and that makes sense because in the first one, it's him leaving Tatooine and becoming a rebel to fight the Empire. And now the second one is about him becoming a Jedi. Yeah, he's leaving the Rebellion to go do space monk things. Yes. With Yoda. So much to the point where he literally goes into a cave and faces himself, which is like, you you can't get any closer to the innermost cave section. Than literally going into a cave. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the ordeal in The Empire Strikes Back would easily be, I mean, he gets his hand chopped off. 
and realizes that his enemy is his father. <laughs> yeah. Like that's pretty crushing. All across different forms of media, you can find the hero's journey, including video games. And the the couple that we want to highlight here as like prime examples of where it of where it was applied is uh Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X. You know, if you're if you're on this YouTube channel, if you're watching this on YouTube, you you know that I'm a big fan of RPGs. So obviously, like I was gonna talk about Final Fantasy at some point. Uh to me, to me, Final Fantasy X is the strongest showing you disagree you were saying during the break that you think that it's final fantasy 7 yeah i th- i think that 7 just fits in more neatly than 10 because you know you have your ordinary world of uh, midgar the city and then you know cloud is just kind of a kind of a tool he like is constantly refusing the call of avalanche and refusing it's like nearly like he, he... nearly the entire first disc is just him refusing the call. Yeah, he just he's he's just kind of a he's kind of a tool to everybody. Then eventually he decides to, they they cross the threshold by leaving the city and then I'm not sure who his mentor would be. Honestly, Aerith is his mentor. Yeah, I would I was going to say Aerith. It works especially well with the whole idea of um resurrection and transformation because he like falls into the makeos of the he falls into the life stream and he's like his brain's all messed up. And then he, you know, figures out who he actually is because of Zack and Sephiroth and all that stuff. And then he comes back as himself, like Master of Two Worlds, that he now accepts who he is and then defeats the villain and saves the saves the world, sort of. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, like approaching the inmost cave would probably be when they go to the city of the ancients. Uh, the ordeal. We all know what the ordeal is. It's the death of the mentor, bruh. Yeah. It's Aerith gets shanked. It's a very common ordeal in the hero's journey is the mentor getting yeah. getting killed. But if we take this and if we apply it to Final Fantasy X, it fits really well as well. You have the order. I feel like almost the entire first act within the hero's journey, you could argue happens in the Xanarkin prologue segment. Because the ordinary world were introduced to uh Titus's life as a blitzball player and his normal, like, you know his normal life in Xanarkand. There's the call to adventure when Sin attacks. Like, you cannot get a more, like, direct call to adventure than shit's going down, we fucked. And then Oren's obviously the Ar- mentor. Oren is definitely the mentor here. There's a refusal to call because Titus is literally just like, I don't know what's going on. Like, you're crazy, old man. And then crossing the first threshold, he literally crosses over into Spira. See, now, I interpret it a little bit differently. Yeah. I feel like that's a more like literal interpretation. I sort of see his refusal of the call going on a lot longer. Yeah. Because throughout the story, he still thinks he's going to go back to Xanarkand. Like he he's in like complete denial because everyone's telling him like Xanarkand's destroyed, bro. I don't know what you're talking about. And yeah, he's like, but my Xanarkand. Yeah, his Xanarkand. And so I think up until the point where he sees it for real that's almost his crossing of the th- of the threshold because he comes to realize that he is never going back to his old life which which is again we we said we can this is many interpretations of how this can work yeah you know Tess allies enemies obviously like he meets the other guardians uh approaching the inmost cave 
that might. Oh, and be... and don't forget the uh, douchebag blitzball players from Luca. Oh yeah, the those 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 assholes. <laughs> I feel like approaching the, approach the inmost cave might be Bavel, or maybe home. One of those two moments would probably be approaching the inmost cave. I would I would say that was a major turning point in the story. I would say it would be it would be the home, because that's when they realize that the whole like um, summoner thing is a lie. And also that's when Titus like that is straight up when Titus realizes like wait I'm protecting her so that she can die. And is isn't that the point where he decides that like okay or or maybe it's when they kill Unaleska because that because that's the point where there's like no turning back. Yeah. And that you like that you can't summon the final Aeon unless you if she if she dies and they're just like okay we're we're basically ending this whole practice right now. This is done. Yeah. Which by the way that boss fight still stands to this day as one of the one of the hardest, I think, in at least for me in RPGs. That you if, you, if you're not fun. if you're not if you're not prepped for it, it'll it'll, F it'll you up. It'll man. kick your ass pretty hard. I was stuck on Unalesca for weeks. I just think that you know, video games, and this is something that we're about to get into here in a moment. It doesn't fit as cleanly, or does it? It. it who knows? We'll we'll talk about it. We'll just see. <laughs> All right, so as we uh, said in that, you know, just amazing segue, applying it to video games is a little bit more complicated than it is to something like movies or literature. And I feel like it's mainly just because of the the way that the medium is. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely not as clean. And that is in large part because the player, you playing the game, insert yourself into whatever game you're playing and you have agency over the story in most cases. Like the reason we were able to fit Final Fantasy games into this into this structure is that those are linear narratives. Yeah. But if you take something, you know, it's a common meme for <laughs> for The Witcher Three. Like, oh, should I save Siri and stop the Wild Hunt? Nah, I'm just gonna play some Gwent, bro. <laughs> Maybe that's refusing the call. You are choosing to not go on an adventure because you'd just rather play, play Gwent. I, I guess so, yeah. It's But it's harder because you can't necessarily fit all those beats. Although if you have uh, the Witcher, Vesemir is a perfect, perfect mentor who, spoiler alert, in Witcher 3 dies. Yeah. There's... A lot of beats in the story, but you know, if you look at all the hero's journey structures, just Google it. It's a big circle, and in any video game where the player can kind of do whatever they feel like, like uh, any Elder Scrolls game, it's just not going to be that nice circular path along the along the journey. Yeah, but I feel like if you if you assume that when you're talking about like an open world game, like let's talk about like Grand Theft Auto Five, for example. If you assume that what goes on when you're free roaming isn't quote unquote canon and only what happens during the missions is, then you can pro you can apply the hero's journey a little bit stronger. I mean, when you're talking about like Grand Theft Auto V, I feel like if you look at Michael's arc, the hero's journey fits fairly decently. I was going to say Franklin. Franklin also has a good one. Trevor, it doesn't fit nearly as well because there isn't really a refusal of the call for trevor um and there really isn't a meeting the mentor for trevor there isn't really one for for michael either um for franklin obviously he meets michael and that's the meeting the mentor uh refusal of the call 
I, I guess Franklin does work a little bit better because with with him, you've got refusal to call. He's lit. He literally like tells Lamar like I'm done doing that gangbanger shit. Like I just want to like live life. And then he meets the mentor, and suddenly he's like, "Well, I guess I'm gonna rob banks." <laughs> Yeah, I think it works fairly well as long as the player is controlling a character. Yeah, like in like in Witcher and Grand Theft Auto and something like um, something like Mass Effect or Dragon Age, or especially Dragon Age Two, because you're playing a specific character. But for something like like a Elder Scrolls game where the game is really inviting you to like the character is essentially a blank canvas that you put whatever you want onto i think that's where it becomes a lot less um it's a lot less cut a lot less a lot less clean and a lot less a lot less meaningful because i guess if you look at the main plot of skyrim there's somewhat of a hero's journey there yeah there's like you know call to adventure suddenly the dragon comes down and so like you gotta go deal with dragons refusal of the call comes down to the player like, do you refuse the call or or are you gung-ho? Meeting the mentor, you'd argue that uh, Mr. Thumbro up in up in High Hrothgar would be meeting the mentor. Crossing the for- the first threshold, probably uh, fighting a Killing dragon. Killing your first dragon. With, with, I mean, it, it would be first dragon. First dragon would be a solid one, but it, you could also argue that it's uh, uh, when you go and fight the newly resurrected dragon with uh, Delphine, because then you realize, oh shit, this is a bigger problem than it seems. And so that's like a major threshold. I figured first threshold because that's when you figure out that you are in fact the dragonborn. Yeah, you could do either really. Um, the ordeal, figuring out that uh, you need to go back in time to kill Alduin, or to figure out. I was going to say. I was going to say. I was going to say the ordeal would be uh, would be trying to convince the the Jarl dude to let him use his castle to catch the dragon because it's tedious. And then that flows right into there's the reward is you literally get a dragon, bro. Here's an interesting question. If the player decides to just not engage with any of that, which is totally reasonable, there's enough content to spend a ton of time without even touching the main plot line. Does not like going on a quote-unquote hero's journey affect the enjoyment of the game in any way? I think that with something like Skyrim, no, it doesn't really affect it being without it i would definitely feel like you know without the hero's journey something like grand theft auto might not be as enjoyable something like uh call of duty games which like have notoriously linear campaigns uh wouldn't be nearly as enjoyable half-life you could argue is a hero's journey a very jumbled hero's journey because the refusal of the call is like in the last five minutes of the game but (laughs) i think within video games it is it is definitely a bit more complicated from an analysis standpoint. But if you're somebody who is if you are trying to devise a story for a game, if you're developing it, if you're designing it yourself, the hero's journey is an incredibly powerful tool for being able to decide what is the story. Now, whether or not the players engage with said story with certain types of games, obviously, that is a choice that they are allowed to make. But does that in turn, like, does that destroy the validity of the hero's journey within games as like a structural piece? No, I don't think it would. I don't think it would. And again, there's it's there's so many different so many different ways you can construct a video game story. You know, you can have a game, something that I've been playing a ton of lately, which is uh, Battle Brothers, which has no plot whatsoever. 
and you just kind of have to kind of have to make it up yourself if you want if you want that sort of addition to my gameplay experience i mean sure some of the characters if you like read their little blurb they have a tiny bit of a backstory but once they join your mercenary group then there's really nothing there when it comes to plot but i know lots of people who you know sort of create their own little narrative in their heads as they're playing a game without really any any plot to speak of yeah so i I mean i guess what this has all been building to and the thing that we need to do before we end this episode owen is we need to break down the hero's journey of uh the guy from quake the guy from quake are we gonna do a are we gonna do the rangers hero's journey because <laughs> uh <laughs> try to think of, try to think of doom guys one original doom guy not not not, not doom slayer they're different people well in, in, i mean in my head in my head canon doom guy and doom slayer are different uh spoiler alert for doom eternal uh it is revealed that the doom slayer is doom guy Ooh. it's like it's like definitively confirmed i mean i figured as much but uh yeah we all sort of just just, it's it's my headcanon i will allow you to keep that headcanon if you allow me to keep the headcanon the doom guy is uh commander keen's son and commander keen is the grandson of bj blaskowitz from wolfenstein (laughs) because i think somebody at id said that that was the case once (laughs) i'll take it i'll take it it's fine We're going to wrap this episode up, so let's give our final thoughts. Owen, what is kind of sort of your your TLDR, like final ideas about the hero's journey and maybe some of your final feelings about uh, how it applies to video games? So I think that if you are at all interested in storytelling as a craft, doesn't really matter the medium, this is something you need to look into. You need to read about it. You need to start analyzing media through this lens. I think one thing that we proved is that if you try hard enough, you can sort of jam almost every, not every, but you can jam a ton of different stories into this sort of hero's journey format. And even if they don't perfectly fit, they'll at least have like some of the the hallmarks, some of the moments. Yeah. So many of these beats are, it's like we said at the very beginning, this stuff is basically universal back to the beginning, like talking about Homer over here. We're talking about Homer. This stuff is in there. The hero's journey was in cave paintings on the walls. Probably. I don't Probably. Know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> tossing that out there. I don't know if it actually was. Well, someone, someone who's done the research, maybe let us know. But if you're interested in learning more about stories, how to tell stories, if you're developing a video game with a narrative, this is something that needs to be on your radar. And it's almost like, you know, I am big into video and photography. And one of the things you get told all the time when you're learning photography, when you're learning cinematography, is that you need to learn the quote-unquote rules first so that later on, if you feel like it, you can break the rules. And know how to break them and still have it work. Exactly. So there's a reason that so many stories fit into the hero's journey is because it works. Star Wars is... How much did Disney buy Star Wars for? Like $4 billion? Yeah. I think it was actually exactly $4 billion. So you have this massive sprawling multimedia empire that sold to for four billion dollars because they made a really good hero's journey movie it might be derivative you might get criticized for like following hero's journey beats but you know if it works for 
pretty much everybody. There's no reason it shouldn't work for you if that's what you want to do. And honestly, if you're doing your job right as a storyteller, it's the kind of thing where like people shouldn't even really notice that it's what you're doing until they sit down to analyze it. If you kill the mentor during the ordeal, people will probably call that out because it is a little it's a trope that happens. But tropes exist for a reason because they work. So don't be afraid to use them. I mean, do you think J.J. Abrams cared that people were criticizing him for doing another hero's journey beat for beat from A New Hope when he made Force Awakens? I don't think As he, he was did. swimming in his swimming pool full of money. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think J.J. really cared. And honestly, most audiences didn't really care that much. Remember all the way back to when The Force Awakens came out? Everybody loved it. I loved it. It was a great time at the movies. Only later on... When I thought about it more and more, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's super derivative, but if I just take that movie by itself without the rest of the sequel trilogy, it's it's fine. It's good. Yeah. It doesn't really matter that it's derivative because, hate to break it to you, most stories are in some way. Hence why it's called the monomyth, the one, the one, one myth. myth. <laughs> now, Owen, if people wanted to accuse you of being derivative of me, where could they find you online? Uh, let's see. You can find me on Twitter where I mostly post, uh, Portland Trailblazers takes. It is a uh, lot of Trailblazers se- stuff. Uh, <laughs> soccer season's ramping up. So you might be seeing some Portland Timbers takes. Uh, you can find me Owen Scott underscore P. I have been trying to do the YouTube thing for like ever and failed at it. Uh, but, but I have like a couple, trying. I have a couple videos you can, you can look up at, uh, just YouTube Owen Scott pool. Uh, hopefully by the time you listen to this, maybe there'll be more. Who knows? I will have links to everything of his down in the description. So go down there, check it out. Give him a follow. And if you want to find me on the internet, obviously I have my YouTube channel, Bender Waffles, B-E-N-D-E-R-W-A-F-F-L-E-S. You might be watching this podcast on that YouTube channel. If not, get over there, check it out. I teach game development and things of that nature. Also, you can find me on Twitter, at Bender Waffles. Same spelling. I'm not prattling it off again. Over there, I tend to talk about movies more than anything. It's, you know, the nature of my day job. But there is some video game takes over there. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, you'll probably probably get a kick out of what I got over there. Uh, so get over there. Give Owen a follow. Give me a follow. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking with my buddy Esh about character design. How do you make cool looking characters that stand out and are memorable and all that, you know, shit. Uh, so be sure to be around for that. Owen will be back in two weeks. We will be talking about Mass Effect, probably some of our favorite games of all time. So excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm real hyped for that because the Legendary Edition is coming out. So if you haven't played Mass Effect, there's a perfect perfect excuse for you to do so but uh until then uh owen thank you for coming on thank you thank you it's always good good time always good talking to you uh and for the rest of you out there until next time keep on developing 